You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we're delving into the world of finance and budgeting, specifically the set of practices known as zero-based budgeting. Now, zero-based budgeting is making something of a comeback. There are a few reasons for this, but probably the biggest is that companies are realising that when done well, zero-based budgeting can be a very effective way to free up cash for reinvestment. In other words, it can underpin a more dynamic approach to reallocating resources across the company. However, as we'll hear, zero-based budgeting is not for the faint-hearted. To discuss the issues, we're joined today by Jan Perkins. Jan is a senior advisor to McKinsey and a former senior executive in the consumer sector. We're also joined by Kyle Hawke, who's a McKinsey partner based in Washington, D.C. So Jan and Kyle, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for having us, Simon. Yep, good to be here. So uh, zero-based budgeting is definitely one of the more sort of quasi-technical topics that we've tackled on this podcast. So Kyle, if you don't mind, maybe start by just giving us a quick overview of what is zero-based budgeting. Yeah, so Simon, the the concept of zero-based budgeting is not a new concept. It was actually introduced in 1970, uh, but is experiencing a bit of a renaissance in recent years. If you go back and you look at the definition of it in 1970, it was purely about the budgeting process and breaking down the budget into small pieces so that management can make decisions on where to invest. But it was purely a budgeting technique. In the last five years, it has experienced a bit of a renaissance because it's become much more than that. It's really a new way of working that allows companies to put their money where it matters most and align resources with their business priorities and do that on a repeatable basis. It's it's a process that's embedded in the normal financial planning and management routines. It's a set of systems that first give you visibility to where you're spending money today and where your resources are today and allows you to compare that to where they should be and then provides better visibility to where you're spending so that you can have better dialogues with the management team. It's a a governance that makes cost management and resource allocation really part of everyone's job rather than just finance. So the obvious follow-up there is why the renaissance? Like you say, as a a concept, this has been around for quite a long time. So what, what makes it especially relevant today? resources get stuck where they have always been. And we've done a lot of research on this and we studied the resource reallocation of 1,500 companies over a 20-year period. And what we found is that 90% of the dollars stay where they were the year before. So only 10% were actually reallocated across business units, geographies, or brands. However, some companies are moving dollars more fluidly. And if you look at those companies with more dynamic resource reallocation, they actually grow their total returns to shareholders by 10%, whereas the more dormant reallocators grow at only 6%. But what that means over that same 20-year period is that the market cap of 
the more dynamic resource reallocators is actually 2x that of the dormant reallocator. So it sounds good, right? But the question is how do you unlock that tight grip that managers have over their budget? And we believe a large part of that lies in zero-based budgeting. I would add, I think, to the rationale behind the renaissance of this. I mean, companies have years of productivity initiatives in trying to unlock those resources. And I believe there's a portion of companies that became quite successful at taking zero-based budgeting, making it more than just a cost reduction or a budgeting exercise, and getting some pretty outstanding results. That caught the attention of your external financial analysts in addition to you know, some of the other competitive companies. And people became more excited about what is the, the magic to zero-based budgeting and can we use it? Will it work for us? And the criticism was, right, that to do this well, you need a level of granularity uh, where costs fall, who the owners are, where the possible efficiencies are and so on. In a more manual finance world, that was a huge level of effort. But in a, in a world where we've got very good cloud-based finance systems, a lot of that infrastructure is there to track it. Is, is that broadly the way to think about it? If you look at some of the criticisms of zero-based budgeting, one of them is that it's not a repeatable process and something that you can only do on a periodic basis. What we've seen is that digital tools actually facilitate the process end-to-end -end and make it easier for companies to make it part of the way that they work rather than this one-time or periodic event. Historically, budgeting from zero was very manually intensive and required thousands of spreadsheets from across the organization, uh, both to build the budget and then to monitor performance at the required level of granularity. But now there are cloud-based solutions that off the shelf for the most part can support the majority of the process and be ingrained in the normal way that you work and replace those thousands of spreadsheets that existed before. And they enable more than just the budgeting. They're also enabling the ability to govern it. And the governance, I think, is a key piece of the sustainability of this sort of initiative. Just say a little bit more about that, Jan. What do we mean when we talk about governance in this context? Governance is the opportunity to really maintain that level of visibility and ensure that you are spending according to the transformational targets um, and the the policy revisions that have been put in place. That, I think, would be, um, in my experience, one of the key faults of some of the prior initiatives. You make the changes, you post them, you communicate them, you put it in the budget, and then over the months and the quarters and the years to follow, you lose visibility as to whether or not people are adhering to the policies and the spending starts to creep back up. The governance, when you're using the tools, to lock into the budgeting can also connect to other tools that help you report against what you're spending, are you adhering to policies, and are there other opportunities to take a look at. Can we put some numbers around what's the upside? What sort of results have we seen for companies putting in zero-based budgeting processes and doing it well? So companies have achieved between 10, 25% in aggregate. Uh, as you drill down into certain cost categories, and depending on how ag aggressive and transformational you want to be, you can certainly see 50 to 60 to 75 percent cost reductions on particular cost categories. 
but these results are pretty immediate. You can see them hit the P&L in four to six months. Some of them that are transformational can take longer. It can take a couple of years. Um, and you can see the savings on any type of costs. Overhead, of course, your organizational supply chain manufacturing costs, um, marketing, distribution, um, within cost of goods sold, capital expenditures, you can apply this approach to any type of cost category. Um, most importantly, in unlocking the, beyond unlocking these resources though, a key contributing factor is a new way of working. And it's gonna build a culture of cost management and an ownership mindset. So people are thinking very much so along the lines on why should I spend this dollar versus historically saying, where can I cut? You talked at the, the talk, Kyle, about incentives. What's the role of incentives in this? And what, what do we mean? Is that sort of incenting department managers to really take this seriously and sort of building that into compensation? Every company has a few metrics in their incentive calculations for executives. And there's always something around growth and there's always something around profit, but there's rarely something around cost as an explicit metric. The assumption is that if we have growth and we have profit, then cost is in the middle of those two and it takes care of itself. In zero-based budgeting, the mindset or the approach is that cost is the one thing that managers have complete control over, especially fixed cost and therefore we should incentivize managers or measure performance of managers based on that as an explicit metric rather than an implicit metric uh, by measuring the other two. Kyle, your, your comments on the operating profit are exactly right. Um, most P&L owners would say, if I hit my operating profit target, clearly I have met my cost targets also in overhead costs. To hold us accountable to how much we're spending uh, and the assessment of is this dollar spend necessary, you need to have it built in as a separate metric. And the incentives can be um, tied to the operating profit or to the annual bonus. There's several ways to do it. But the clarity of what we report and what we measure, we deliver is a message and an accountability that you cannot do this without. So what are the other success factors, do you think, Kyle? When, when you look at like, what are the key things you have to get right here to do this well, what would you pick out? I can think of five success factors. One is that you need to align the approach to the organization's culture and objectives. This is not a one-size-fits-all approach, and there are many dimensions on how to customize it. For example, you know, the level of focus that uh, you have on reinvestment uh, versus target setting, the degree of granularity which you go to in the budgeting are all uh, choices that a company can make to make it fit for purpose. A second success factor would be to have an intelligent approach to target setting. Not every dollar is created equal, and there are areas that you want to protect and invest, which are aligned with the value drivers of the business, and there are others that you want to eliminate completely or cut to the bone. And you need to be able to distinguish good dollars from bad dollars or productive costs from unproductive costs so that you can address them intelligently. 
The third would be to have an equal focus on where to invest as there is on where to reduce. If you overemphasize the cost reduction or the target setting aspect, you have the risk of losing the organization along the way and having them believe that you know, you've gone too far and you swung the pendulum and you've forgotten about growth. Um, but if you can engage the organization in identifying where to reinvest those dollars, it's actually an incredibly inspiring moment for them to say, you know, that was hard, but it was worth it because we were able to do these things that we weren't able to do before. A fourth would be to focus on changing the mindsets and behaviors in the frontline operators and not making it just a financial exercise or a productivity initiative. And then finally, uh, to have serious and visible commitment from top management, especially during the activation phase as you're embedding the new ways of working. So just, just say a little bit more about senior leadership commitment. Uh, it, it's something that we hear is necessary, of course, in, in any big transformational change. But for zero-based budgeting, what does it actually mean in practice? My experience was the leadership commitment and role modeling was a critical success factor. And, and what that means or what that looks like, um, you say lead by example. Where that became very visible and impactful to the organization to start the cultural shift and the realization that things would be different, there would be a new way of working. Um, it begins in the target setting, having a leadership team that's committing to being decisive and aligned on where you're going, transformational on where they want to see things differently, being committed to if it's one policy, it fits and applies to all of us. So that's walking the walk or leading by example. So we didn't write policies where you had the haves and the have nots. So if you were this level or above, you could still retain this uh, benefit or this service. And if you're this level and below, you could not. And if we really are going to be serious about every dollar matters, it matters no matter what level you're at in the organization. Something as simple as the commitment during the ZBB initiative was less printers um, and going paperless as much as possible. So I would see executives come into the meetings and say, make sure you bring your laptop or put a projector in the room because we're not, we're not printing out copies. And as soon as you had an executive once or twice say, no, thank you, I don't want that copy, it didn't take long at all before everybody got that message. Just small examples like those would contribute to overall showing that we're serious in a new way of working and it's going to take some of the monies we used to spend and redirect them or allow us to redirect them and grow the business. Communication also was critical. They needed to continually communicate to employees, talking to them along the way, here's what we're looking at, here's what we're changing, here's what it means. Having the leadership being seen as the ones committed to that and sharing the message and people would hear that message being shared by the leadership and say, wow, they are serious about this and this is going to be a new way of working and if they're going to adhere to the policy, I guess I shouldn't ask for an exception to the policy. That being said, that was not an easy thing for them to swallow and say, yeah, okay, we're going to give up all of these benefits also because we're on the team, was 
if there was a particular cost category that we were going after really aggressively, uh, there was the ability to say, let's collect data, let's stay fact-based, let's accumulate information on whether or not we think this is inhibiting us to be successful. So if after nine months, 12 months, this policy is punitive or it's not supportive of where we're going, let's agree that we can change it. And once we did that, you had more leaders saying, okay, I can, I can get on board with that. Let's try it, let's do it, let's collect the data. It sounds like there was a, a willingness to test and learn as yes. well that may not have existed in other programs. Mm -hmm. and, and to be fact-based about it. So it wasn't hearsay and sound bites, it was the willingness to do it was based on collect the data, let's see the real facts, and then let's continue to be decisive moving forward. That was a significant cultural shift and very eye-opening, I think, on several cost categories to actually get us to where we needed to be. Are there other ways that leaders can role model just in terms of uh, the questions that they ask, for example? Part of the success of the total zero-based budgeting transformation is to help them be strong leaders so that they can learn how to approach things differently and then teach their teams and their managers how to approach things differently. How do you handle all of these constant confrontations and conflicts and negotiations? So when you go about assessing a cost category or looking at it, what are the right questions to ask? How do you assess whether or not this spend is necessary? What do I do with a very strong-willed manager who says, you know, life will end if we can't have this spend? And sometimes just giving the managers the words, or even the, the sales reps, how do I talk to my, my clients and my customers now when I have this new meal allowance I have to adhere to? And so you can give them, you know, let's role play a little bit and, and talk about how do you explain to them that this is where the company's going and here's why. It's because we will now have this money to invest in these things that will grow both our businesses. Openness and willingness to have those dialogues were huge learning opportunities and gave us, I think, the foundation to actually build on to shift the culture. So something I read about in the literature is, is around having dual cost ownership or dual category ownership. I think that's a really interesting idea. So Jan, what does that mean in practice and how does it help? So the, the dual ownership of cost categories is extremely interesting and it's hard initially to get your head around how that's going to work. And as you talk to the leadership that owns a P&L, not only are you now from a ZBB standpoint um, analyzing all of the dollars being spent, you're introducing another layer of governance looking over their shoulders making sure that they are adhering to the targets and the spend. My experience was it was met with some, some resistance initially, and it, it didn't work as well um, as we had hoped. Trying to understand the culture of the company and where the leadership was in the acceptance and acknowledgement of it, we st stepped back and redesigned it, and the leadership team needed to step right in and be the ones who did the cross-category ownership. So you would have a president of a business unit who had a complete P&L that they were accountable for, but also oversaw 
the spending in a certain category. So you could, um, inventory write-offs is a cost category and something that transformationally you were looking to make some significant uh, headway in the processes to over time reduce it dramatically. That particular business unit president would oversee that across the organization. They would have conversations with other business unit owners, other supply chain leads, and anybody who was contributing to that overall spend as to how they were progressing, where they were at, um, the rationale behind being off target, what things were being done to address getting back on target, and what help they might need to get there. Once we got to the point to where the leaders were being the ones accountable for help overseeing by cost category, this oversight, it was much more impactful. Plus they knew they had the resources under them to support that from a visibility and a governance standpoint. I talked earlier about this idea of adapting the approach to the company's culture and objectives and one of the ways to adapt the approach is to design this cost category owner role uh, to be fit for purpose. And so there's a spectrum of ownership that we see with our clients that can vary over time and it can also vary by area of, of the business or cost category. And on the far left you have this individual playing the role of a coach and on the far right you have this individual playing the role of a co-owner. And a, a coach is there to inform or guide and help share best practices and a co-owner is designed to do all that but also have a joint accountability for and a say in the spend decisions in that area. So this whole part of the conversation has brought home to me again that, you know, zero-based budgeting is not for the faint-hearted. It does involve quite significant changes in the way that people work, including in the executive team. So, Kyle, you must talk to a lot of companies about zero-based budgeting. How do you know and how do they know that they're ready to commit to something like this? So I definitely talk to a lot of clients on this topic, and I would say that for every one client I have the opportunity to serve, there are probably 10 where we have the conversation, we explore it, and then we mutually agree that a ZBB approach is not for them. And this can be for many reasons, but oftentimes it is because that there is just not the leadership commitment at the moment to drive it. And that's okay, because there are other approaches that you can take that are probably then more fit for purpose, and they don't need to go all in to really focus on changing the ways of working. And for the one in 10 where you do decide jointly to move forward with a commitment to zero-based budgeting, what can you do and what can the executives do themselves to get ready to get this off the ground successfully? Uh, the first is to help senior leaders write their own personal change stories. This is their own interpretation or words of why the company is embarking on this journey and what it means for them personally. And they can then use this change story to communicate and cascade with their team in a much more personal way rather than taking a, a script that somebody else gave to them. The second is identifying other influencers across the organization. 
So you have to engage not just senior leadership, but also these influencers, which are not necessarily at the top levels of the organization. The third thing is something we've talked a, a, quite a bit about today, which is helping leaders role model the new, very visible behaviors. And so whether that's dropping the gold-plated IT service desk that was previously exclusive to the leadership team, or just simply asking the right questions to the organization around what would it take to get there, it's helping them role model those behaviors because we have seen that to be so critical. And then fourth would be co-creating the answer with employees rather than simply handing it down as a mandate. And this is incredibly important to drive conviction in, in the targets and that yes, there is a way to get there so that when you go start to build up from zero, you actually have a path on how you're going to achieve it rather than a bunch of plugs in the budget that you need to figure out throughout the year. Anything you'd add to that list, Jen? The other piece is once you do agree to go into this journey, and Kyle mentioned you know, giving each senior leader their own personal message, incorporating in that a knowledge and a foundation on where the organization has been. There's no organization out there that hasn't already been through some productivity initiative and is going to be skeptical coming into this right off the bat. So helping them relate that, why would this be different? Also taking into consideration the company's culture and what is it that's going to help make this successful and how you can get them to that point of being fact-based and addressing some of the emotional reactions, I think are, are just really key. So I think that's all we have time for today, but Kyle and Jan, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Simon. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. To learn more about our work in zero-based budgeting, finance, growth, and organizational change, please visit us at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.